The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Good morning, Springs Church. I want to welcome each and every one of you this morning in the name of Jesus Christ. And I want to thank you for being here, especially our visitors. If this is your first time at The Springs, welcome. It is wonderful to have you here. And if this is your first time at the Springs, then I wanted to let you know that we are a church that is being transformed into the image of Christ so that anyone can find the way to God. And we think about our, the rhythms of our church life here in three different rhythms. We think about our church life in the rhythms of gathering around the Lordship of Jesus for worship, specifically on Sunday mornings, of growing, growing into the image of Christ in our connections groups, and our classes primarily, and finally going, going to share God's love with the world. So I want to thank you for joining us in that first rhythm this morning of gathering with us and invite you to join us as we continue to grow and to go share God's love with the world. I'm grateful that you're here with us today. We're in Acts ch- chapter 16, the Spirit-powered church this morning. We're in verses 16 through 34. One day, as we were going to the place of prayer, we met a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners a great deal of money by fortune-telling. While she followed Paul and us, she would cry out, These men are slaves of the Most High God who proclaim to you a way of salvation. She kept doing this for many days, but Paul, very much annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I order you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. When they had brought them before the magistrates, they said, These men are disturbing our city. They are Jews and are advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to adopt or observe. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates had them stripped of their clothing and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they had given them a severe flogging, they threw them into prison and ordered the jailer to keep them securely. Following these instructions, he put them in the innermost cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was an earthquake so violent that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately, all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer woke up and saw the prison doors wide open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself since he supposed that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted in a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. The jailer called for lights, and rushing in, he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them outside and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They answered, Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all 
who were in his house. At the same hour of the night, he took them and washed their wounds. Then he and his entire family were baptized without delay. He brought them up into the house and set food before them, and he and his entire household rejoiced that he had become a believer in God. Let's pray. Lord God, we give thanks for this morning, for your mercies that are new yet again. And God, we give thanks for your word, for this story. I ask God that you would make us great hearers of your word, and that more so you would make us great doers of your word, that we would live out these gospel truths in our lives. Ask for the gift of preaching this morning, Lord Jesus, and ask your blessing upon us as we continue to worship you and praise your name. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray these things. Amen. Have you ever said something that turned out to be more true than you realized at the time? You know, said something that kind of turned out to be a pseudo-inadvertent prophecy that sort of set the tone and theme for what would play out. My wife, Lara, has actually a pretty interesting breakup story about this very thing. And it's a wonderful woman, by the way, that will let her husband tell her breakup stories from the pulpit. <laughs> but it was the summer before her senior year of high school, and she'd been dating this guy, let's call him Andrew. She'd been dating this guy for about six months, and they were signed up to go to a church camp together and work at that later in August. Uh, but Lara wasn't really feeling the relationship at this point. However, she was like, maybe this is a rough patch. We can just push through and we'll see. Either way, I don't want to break up with him and have to spend an entire week at camp together broken up. Awkward. So they get to camp, and long story short, uh, Andrew has been pretty annoying most of the week, and he's kind of been flirty with another girl, and so Lara's really not feeling things at this point. And if you've been to church camp, you know that sometimes when you get to meals, um, if you kind of get out of line, you have to do a sort of silly or embarrassing or funny punishment, such as walk around the mess hall holding someone's hand or get up and sing a song. So Andrew gets caught with his elbows on the table, and he opts for the song choice. And so he gets up, and in front of everybody on the stage, he dedicates the song to Lara, and then proceeds to sing the song, I kid you not, You've Lost That Lovin' Feeling. <laughs> You've Lost That Lovin' Feeling. And Lara's thinking, yep. Sure have. <laughs> Needless to say, uh, the breakup obviously happened after camp, and uh, we were all better for it, weren't we? <laughs> Luke has given us a story this morning, not a breakup story, but Luke has given us a story that starts with annoyance and starts with this kind of pseudo-inadvertent prophecy that turns out to be true and turns out to set the theme for what's going to happen later. 
Paul and Silas are on this missionary journey in Philippi. And Luke says that this slave girl's been following them around and she's been possessed with this spirit of divination. And that she's been saying over and over again, following them, these men are slaves of the Most High God who proclaim to you a way of salvation. Now, she doesn't know the extent to which this is true, but she's actually correct. Now, Most High God could actually refer to Zeus for her in that pagan context, but she's actually right. They are servants of the Most High God of Israel, and they are proclaiming a way of salvation. And that is exactly what this story hinges upon. This is a story that hinges upon salvation what it is, what it looks like, and how it comes about. This is a salvation story. But before we get to that, there's an exorcism. So Paul is annoyed, and he exercises this spirit of divinization out of her, and it comes out, and that's a great thing for Paul and Silas, but it's not a good thing when the owners find out. Because they have made a lot of money off of this slave girl and her prophesying, her fortune telling, right? And so in verse 19, things take a turn. But when her owners saw that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. When they had brought them before the magistrates, they said, these men are disturbing our city. They are Jews and are advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to adopt or observe. I think sometimes when we read Acts 16, we want to speed ahead to the exciting prison earthquake scene. Or in Churches of Christ, we kind of just want to reach ahead and extract that verse about baptism. But I think if we do that, we'll miss some of the finer details that give us the full picture. And one of them is right here in the very beginning, and that's the picture of Philippi. The picture of Philippi is kind of a microcosm of the world at large. It is a world desperately in need of salvation. Look at all the different sins that crop up just in these first six verses of our story. We've got slavery, Fear, contempt, greed. Greed is really driving the wheels of this vehicle, actually. If you really want to see someone's true colors, poke at their profit margin, right? Prod at the economic side of things. And that's what Paul and Silas have kind of inadvertently done. But there's another sin, a pernicious evil that crops up and rears its ugly head in our text. They say to the magistrates, these men are disturbing our city. They are Jews and are advocating customs that are not lawful to us as Romans to adopt or observe. They are Jews. Racism rears its ugly head. Anti-Semitism specifically pops up in our story. In this one little line, a whole world history of Gentile hatred is figured and shown. In this one little line, these men have juxtaposed on one side the supposedly stable social Roman order 
and the Jewish problem. In order to protect their profit margin, these men begin to incite this fear, this hatred, this anti-Semitism and bigotry in order to protect their resources. And if you think that our own culture today has just left this kind of sin behind, you need only look around. Racism, and specifically anti-Semitism, is a growing problem in the Western world. Anti-Semitism in our own country on both sides of the political aisle, both the far right and the far left, have a problem with anti-Semitism. And it's in this way, this racism and fear and greed, that Philippi shows us a city desperately in need of salvation, a city very much like our own world today. But I'm afraid things only get worse in Acts 16. Verse 22, the crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates had them stripped of their clothing and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they had given them a severe flogging, they threw them into prison and ordered the jailer to keep them securely. Following these instructions, he put them in the innermost cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Christian tradition has no shortage of convicts. Martin Luther King Jr., Dietrich Bonhoeffer, John the Baptist, all the way to Jesus himself. Christians have often embodied the gospel in ways that put them at odds with the principalities and powers and got themselves thrown in prison. And so here are Paul and Silas, chained up, suffering from their wounds, praying and singing hymns to God. What an amazing scene. This has to be one of the most iconic scenes from the book of Acts. Because it's a scene that is grounded not in some kind of optimism. It's a scene grounded in a confidence and resilience fueled by Christian hope. Fueled by hope in a God who can do the impossible. Right? As Mary knows, all the way back in the book of Luke, that with God, all things are possible. It's a confidence and hope fueled by hope in God who can raise the lame to walk again. God who brings his Pentecostal spirit of fire. God who has raised Jesus Christ from the dead. It's a resurrected hope. It's a hope based in the salvation of Jesus Christ. And so around midnight, amidst this faithful worshiping, God does something truly remarkable. Suddenly there was an earthquake so violent that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer woke up and saw the prison doors wide open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself since he supposed that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted in a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. 
The jailer called for lights, and rushing in, he fell down, trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them outside and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They answered, Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. You know, we're not entirely sure why the jailer moves to commit suicide at this moment. It may be that he fears the magistrates who will be so angry that the prisoners have escaped that they will take his life. It may be that he fears the escaped prisoners who might come and harm him or take his life. Or he may even fear this earthquake as a kind of divine judgment that he feels he will not escape. But whatever the case may be, he goes to Paul and Silas and he asks them this wonderful question, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And I'm afraid that we might miss this question if we hear it only with our own ears. I'm afraid that from our own space and time and location and culture that we might miss how to hear this question with first century ears. Right? This jailer coming to Paul and Silas asked, what must I do to be saved? And in asking that, he's not asking for, say, a detailed explanation of justification by grace through faith. Right? He's not asking them to quote to him the steps of salvation. He's not asking them to, to tell him about how he can get to a place called heaven instead of a place called hell, right? He, he's in a pagan context with all different views of the afterlife and none quite so clear and precise as our sort of heaven-hell that has taken root in the Western world. No, his question is as much theological as it is pragmatic, Right, the way that the word saved or salvation is used in the Bible, in the Gospel of Luke, even by Jesus himself, it means to rescue, to be delivered. Jesus uses it even to talk about healing when he heals someone or makes them whole. So on, on one level, to be saved, salvation, is asking how can I be delivered from this predicament that I'm in? How can I be rescued? There's a sense in which he's asking Paul and Silas, how can I get out of this mess that I'm in? And Paul and Silas give an answer to him. They answer and say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And in answering this way, Paul and Silas are not changing the subject they're not changing the subject of his question. They're deepening the answer. Because Paul and Silas see his current present predicament, and yet they also see the larger picture of salvation, and they know that the answer to both is salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And the reason they can do this is because salvation is here now and hereafter. Salvation begins here now and extends to the hereafter. Christian salvation doesn't look at our present problems and just kind of ignore them so we can float away to a disembodied heaven one day. Christian salvation is concerned with every piece of it, 
Christian salvation in Jesus Christ sees the macro problems, the, the cosmic problems of sin and death and the devil, the systems of oppression and injustice, the sins of fear and slavery and greed and sexual sin, and it sees all of them and it touches it all. It touches all of these huge problems all the way down to this very moment of chaos in the jailer's life. Christian salvation matters for the, the macro and the micro, for, for the here now and the hereafter. And they're saying Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer to your present predicament, to your future fate, to your every day, to your eternal. The answer to all of it, beginning now, partially, and extending into the future is the salvation of Jesus Christ. Because salvation is here now and hereafter. And so they proclaim this word to the jailer. And in verse 32, they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. At the same hour of the night, he took them and washed their wounds. Then he and his entire family were baptized without delay. He brought them up into the house and set food before them. And he and his entire household rejoiced that he had become a believer in God. You might remember that terrible Charlottesville rally that took place about a year and a half ago. This was a white supremacist rally in Virginia that was attended by neo-confederates, alt-right, neo-nazis, Ku Klux Klan. And a young woman died that day when a white supremacist drove his car into a crowd of pedestrians and counter-protesters. But also at the rally that day was a man named Ken Parker. Ken Parker was there, in his words, to defend, stand up for his white race. You see, Parker had joined the KKK in 2012 and risen to the ranks of Grand Dragon until he realized that the KKK wasn't hateful enough for him, and so he became a neo-Nazi instead. And as Parker was leaving and regrouping with his buddies in a parking garage that day, he ran into a young black woman filmmaker. And she was making a documentary on hate groups and asked to interview him, and so she began to interview him. And Parker was essentially suffering from something like heat exhaustion from that day and was struck by the kindness of this young woman throughout the interview, that she was checking on him and making sure that he was okay. And that day, he began to wonder, why do I hate people with darker skin than me? A few months later, he and his girlfriend were at their apartment complex when they saw a black man having a cookout next to their complex pool. And he went and talked to him. And they began to ask him questions. And they found out his name was William McKinnon III, and he was a pastor at the All Saints Holiness Church. They continued to talk, and they met up later, and... McKinnon eventually invited them to their Easter Sunday service. Well, it was a few weeks after attending that that Parker got up in front of the almost entirely African-American congregation and 
told them his testimony, confessed his past. And jaws dropped, eyes widened. But afterwards, nobody came up and berated him or hated him. They came up and shook his hand and built him up and encouraged him. And it was in July of last year that Parker, in contrast to the green robes of the KKK, entered the Atlantic Ocean with Pastor McKinnon wearing a white baptismal gown. And that day he put on Jesus Christ in baptism. And he rose up out of the waters and he walked onto the shore and he was received into the arms of the awaiting congregation. As far as we know, the jailer in Acts 16 was no Cornelius. As far as we know, he was no Ethiopian eunuch. And by that I mean he wasn't a God-fearing man connected to a synagogue or kind of standing on the precipice of the kingdom. He was a pagan man connected to the local jail, which was a symbol of opposition to the Christian mission. But what we know about baptism is that baptism can take the worst of enemies and make them the best of friends. Baptism can take the worst of vocations and change them to something beautiful. Baptism can reach into our deepest darkness and out of it shine a great and glorious light. That's what happens in Christian baptism. That's what happens in salvation in the name of Jesus Christ. Church, we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ because anywhere there is deliverance, Jesus is there. Acts 4 says there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. If we are to be rescued, only the Lord Jesus can do it. Only the Lord Jesus can shake the foundations of our prisons. Right? Only the Lord Jesus can release the captives, can bring sight to the blind and good news to the poor. Only the Lord Jesus, only the Lord Jesus can take away our blindness, our fear, our hatred. It is only the Lord Jesus who can melt our hard and violent heart. It's only the Lord Jesus who can bring together what was divided, who can bring Jew and Gentile together. It's only the Lord Jesus Christ. In Him is salvation alone. Only the Lord Jesus can baptize a Nazi at the All Saints Holiness Church, can take our garments of hatred and give us a clean baptismal gown, can save and rescue the jailer from his own prison. That's only the Lord Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and praise that Lord Jesus together.